back in 1990, Guidepost magazine republished an old story, or really a legend, and it went something like this. American Indians, Native Americans, had a custom by which they take their boys through the rite of passage into manhood. And that particular rite of passage is to, around the time of 15 or 16, they send those boys out to the forests or mountains uh, to be all alone in solitude. And then they come down and ceremony to make them be men. And the legend goes something like this. One particular young man hiked all the way to the top of a high mountain. And when he got all the way to the top, he was able to see almost like forever at the Vesta, his view for miles. And as he was standing there looking at the view, he heard some rustling at the leaves at his feet. And to his amazement, it was a rattlesnake. And to his greater amazement, that rattlesnake began to talk to him. The rattlesnake said to the young man, It's cold up here, and I'm freezing. Put me under your shirt so I can stay warm. And then carry me down to the valley where I belong. No, said the young man. I know you're kind. You're a rattlesnake. The moment I pick you up, you're going to bite me. That is not so, said the rattlesnake. I won't harm you at all. In fact, I will be eternally grateful for saving my life. The young man insisted and persisted and saying no to the rattlesnake, but the rattlesnake kept on persisting and asking again and again and again. Because of the rattlesnake's persuasion, he the rattlesnake, and placed it inside his shirt, and he carried it all the way down to the valley. As soon as he took that rattlesnake out of his shirt and placed it on the ground, the snake turned around, struck him, bit him, releasing large amount of venom into his body. The young man cried out in pain and in fear, Why did you do that? I saved your life. You promised that you wouldn't bite me. The rattlesnake said, You knew what I am when you picked me up. As it slithered down the grass in the bushes. I don't think the story really needs explanation. For many of us have one way or another no the bite of Satan after he entices us, compromising our biblical convictions and our biblical principles. Now, some people, when they get bitten by the snake as a result of their compromise, they immediately cry foul. This is not fair. The rattlesnake did not play by the rules. It's not my fault, but none of that works. For if you give in to the rattlesnakes of compromising biblical truth and biblical conviction, allowing sin in your life, 
you and I most assuredly will be bitten. You might not be bitten the first day or the first week or the first month or maybe even the first year, but you and I most assuredly will be bitten. Now, the snake is no other than Satan. And that is why the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11.3, he said, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds somehow were led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, I hope you got Nehemiah chapter 6 open in front of you. There you find Nehemiah was not just facing one rattlesnake, he was facing three rattlesnakes. Three. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And those three rattlesnakes were out to destroy him. And just in case, just in case you did not already know, let me assure you that compromise is extremely, extremely, extremely seductive. Satan will always hold out the shiny one, sparkling, shimmering. You want to get ahead in life? Do you want to climb up the corporate ladder faster? Do you want to be popular? Do you want to avoid rejection? Do you want the easy way out? Do you want to get rich quick? And on and on and on. And the moment you say, yeah, that's an intriguing idea, (laughs) the snake is inside your shirt. Hasn't bitten you yet, but get ready. Look at Nehemiah. Right at the time when the rebuilding of the wall is about finished, right at that conclusion, these three miserable rattlesnakes, if they could not destroy the work of God, they will try to corrupt and destroy the man of God and the woman of God. Now they're getting ready for the ribbon-cutting ceremony. And these miserable three rattlesnakes went for enticement. You see, at this moment of history, the walls are rebuilt. The gates, almost ready. They haven't been hung yet, so there's doorways open. And let me tell you right away, (laughs) Satan loves open doors. He loves ajar doors in your life and in mine. He loves those. And the doors were still open. Sanballat and company sent Nehemiah a message. In fact, four messages. Look at verse 4. They're right there. Let's get together. Let's negotiate. <laughs> Let's have a dialogue. Let's meet on the plains of Uno. And Nehemiah hears the word Uno, and he said, oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to come to that. I'm going to explain to you why. What are these rattlesnakes doing? <laughs> they are changing their tactics and beginning to say, Nehemiah, my friend, <laughs> let's just let the bygone be bygone. We don't need to fight one another. Let's be friends. Let me tell you about the choice of Uno and why. Uno was about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. So he's going to get out of the protected walls and go 20 miles north. 
And Uno, the valley of Uno, it's beautiful. I mean, it's a beautiful place. It is on par with any beautiful resort that you can think about today. I mean, it is a first-class spa and relaxation everywhere. And what could be better for a man who had been working so hard and exhausted with bricks and with stones and with mortar? What can be better for him than to get time out and rest and relax? (laughs) There's nothing wrong with relaxation. Just be patient with me, okay? It's because there's more. Uno was halfway between Jerusalem and Samaria. Samaria is about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. Uno is 20 miles. It's exactly halfway point between Samaria, where Sambalat and all those miserable people came from, and where Nehemiah was. What is Sambalat saying here? He's saying, Nehemiah, let's meet halfway. <laughs> we come halfway, and you come halfway. We'll meet in the middle somewhere. And Nehemiah heard Uno, and he said what? Oh, no. Oh, no. But before some of you get angry with me and saying, what's wrong with compromise? Well, there are times where compromise is necessary. Sometimes a compromise is good and important. In politics, in resolving conflicts and relationships, in negotiating contracts, in making Agreements between nations, each one would give in a little and they somehow come to an agreement, and that's fine. That's not what I'm talking about. In fact, I have been compromising with my wife for years. <laughs> She'll tell you. When we get into conflict, ooh, Pastor, you get into conflict? You better believe it. <laughs> we get into conflict, we get together. She will state her case, I'll state my case, and then we compromise. We do it her way. (laughs) She she knows that's not true. (laughs) I want to go home for lunch today. (laughs) But look, compromising in these things I talked about is one thing, but compromising with sin... Compromising with some ballots of this world, compromising your biblical principles, compromising biblical truth. These are all rattlesnakes that will always bite you big time. What we need today more than any other time in my lifetime is men and women, boys and girls of God who have discernment and wisdom so they can discern the truth from falsehood. Especially these days when we're seeing individuals who have sat under the Word of God, other individuals who have preached the Word of God for years. Now they've heard the call of the rattlesnake. Come down. And unlike Nehemiah, they came down and compromising their convictions. Listen, Nehemiah was not for a moment suggesting that this was great work because he was doing it. No. When you are obedient to God's purpose in your life, any work that God assigns to you is an important work. It doesn't matter 
whether Sunday school teaching or small group leading, whether you are ushering or serving at the Lord's table, whatever it may be, all of God's work done obediently to God is a great work. Now, I want to say something to moms, because every now and again, sometimes I hear a mom who says, well, I'm just a housewife, I'm just a mom, listen to me. You can absolutely confidently say, I am an executive director of the future leaders of this country. I am the executive producer of the future generation of heroes in this country. Don't let others define you. Don't let other people deter you from your great work, the greatest of work that I can think of. Don't let other people run you down. But here's often what happens when you refuse to compromise with sin and your biblical truth, when you stand firm, when you say no once, twice, a hundred times, the enemy is going to go for sweet talking. (laughs) He will go for sweet talking in order to intimidate you. I know in these days of public opinion polls and, and the Facebook and Twitter and focus groups and everyone has an opinion about everything. Sadly, very few have conviction. Some of you may ask, well, Michael, is there a difference between an opinion and a conviction? I'm glad you asked. Listen to me. (laughs) An opinion is a belief that we hold, but a conviction is a belief that holds us. A conviction takes grasp of our hearts and our minds and never let go. I know and you know that we live in a time that demands for men and women, boys and girls, to, of conviction to stand up and be counted, to stand up for the truth. Daniel Webster is a brilliant American statesman and a senator from Massachusetts. He lived during the momentous times in the 19th century. He was widely admired for his ability to speak and his oratory. He was an admired man. In 1830, he was called the most eloquent man in Congress. Poems were written about him and about his conviction, about his eloquence by such of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Poems written about him. He was a staunch anti-slavery senator, and he was on his way to becoming president of the United States. But to receive his party's confirmation and nomination, he had to compromise his conviction. And he went down in personal defeat. And his star waned so fast. Just as an aside, every time I think of that, every time I think of that, I just said, oh God, how far have we come? How far have we come? And now we vote for people who say one thing and do another. We don't care anymore whether politicians have a personal conviction or not, as long as they speak well. How far have we come? How many people claim to be Christians, and yet they have a for sale written over their foreheads? These days, people are compromising their convictions so easily. Many are tempted to rethink their belief about the authority of the Scripture. Uh, Many others are re-evaluating what the Bible says or what the Bible calls sin and immorality. No wonder the book of Revelation repeatedly says that the rewards are kept for those who refuse to compromise all the way to the end. Here's a warning to the faithful. 
after you say no once and twice and three times and a hundred times, the enemy, if he cannot sweet talk you, if he could not discourage you, he's going to try to intimidate you and harass you. They did to Nehemiah. Look at it. First discouragement, then ridicule, mockery, none of that worked. So they tried enticement, manipulation, wheedling, sweet talk, and cajoling. And when neither bullying nor beguiling worked, they tried intimidation. They sent him an open letter, and they published it in the Jerusalem Times, verses 6 and 7. I mean, you can tell that they were so exasperated, they were so frustrated that private attempts have failed again and again and again. So now they resort to public intimidation. They threaten him to tell the king of Persia that Nehemiah is building his own kingdom. You see, when all else fails, they resort to blackmail and lies. They knew if the king really believed their lies, if the king of Persia even got a hint that what they're saying is true, he would have turned on Nehemiah, he would have captured him, he would have tortured him, and he would have executed him as a rebel in order to set an example. That's how they did it. Not only that, but the king probably would have sent another army and re-destroyed the walls. Question, would the king of Persia have believed their lies? Probably not. He knew Nehemiah too well. He worked for him as his chief of staff. He knew him. He knew his heart. Probably would not have believed it, but it doesn't matter. See, Sambalat constructed a deceptive and yet plausible scenario, very sound scenario, to stop Nehemiah. He concocted this false accusation that went something like this. Nehemiah, you're an egomaniac. Nehemiah, you're in for glory for yourself. Nehemiah, you want to be a dictator. Nehemiah, you're an autocrat. Nehemiah, you want all personal power grab. And the opposite is true. We've been seeing it throughout the series. The opposite is true. Nehemiah left behind in the palace in Susa the comfort and the power He left behind luxury in the palace, and he came to Jerusalem where he probably was sleeping in a Hessian-made sleeping bag, living under constant threat, doing the work of a bricklayer, uh, getting his fingernails dirty and his hands calloused. He was denying himself while he's encouraging others. What's happening here? Listen carefully, please. Nehemiah became a victim of gossip. And he shows us here how a godly should respond to opposition, intimidation, threats, and blackmail. Verses 8 and 9. You see, because his conscience was clear, because he lived his life as an open book, because he knew their wicked nature, he basically said to them, this is a use of translation, you're not going to find it in your Bible, take your best shot. And so it didn't work. I think from time to time, many of us face false accusations. And those false accusations can spread so fast before you get a chance to refute them. These false accusations sap your physical energy. They sap your emotional energy, cost you sleep. It causes ignorant people to 
turn on you. It can destroy your reputation. When that happens, remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, when all else fails, they only got one thing left. The only one thing left. To assassinate him. Kill him. That's the last resort. Look at verses 10 all the way to 14. They tried an assassination attempt. And for that, they employed a false prophet by the name of Shemaiah. Helped them in their miserable deed. There's nothing worse. Listen to me. There's nothing worse than someone who knows a little bit of the Scripture. And they know exactly how to twist it, how to torture it, and how to abuse it and falsify it to intimidate you. Oh, doesn't the Bible say that you shouldn't judge anyone? (laughs) Have you heard that one? Doesn't the Bible say that Christianity is inclusive? Doesn't the Bible say that you should love everybody regardless of what they do, regardless of what… On and on and on and on. We hear it all the time. You see, when the false prophet told Nehemiah that the assassins are on their way, what is he trying to do? He's trying to flush Nehemiah out. He's trying to flush him out so that they can get a clear shot at him and kill him. This trick brought about the opposite effect for Nehemiah. And here Nehemiah uses one of my favorite phrases in the entire book of Nehemiah, verse 11. It's my favorite phrase. (laughs) Should a man like me flee, or should a man like me run away? You see, Nehemiah knew that Shemaiah was a false prophet and a traitor has sold his soul to the devil. You say, but why? How can that be? I want to explain to you. By trying to get him into the sanctuary, they're trying to get him, not only get a clear shot at him, but probably would be killed by his own people. You say, but why? Well, Nehemiah was a layman. He was not a priest. And only the priests were allowed to get into the sanctuary of God, not the lay people. As a matter of fact, it is a crime in the law of God. In the book of Numbers chapter 151, in the book of Numbers 3.10, in the book of Numbers 18.7, read it when you go home. It's a crime punishable by death. (laughs) Please, 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 test the spirits always. Test the spirits. Know who's speaking the truth and who's not. And God honored Nehemiah's faithfulness and his refusal to break the law of God. Verses 15 to 19. In 52 days, 52 days, the wall was built. What was impossible appears now to be possible because of God's power working and because God's people united together. God began to do the impossible. Listen to me as I'm concluding here. Don't ever forget that we do serve the God of the impossible. I know in the midst of trouble, sometimes we forget that. And if and when every member of this church 
discover and uses their spiritual gift in this church. Whenever the leadership of this church would consider prayer meeting on Wednesday night, priority one, I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God, God is going to do some great and mighty things. In this post-Christian era, God is not looking for pure warmers. God is not looking for sunshine Christians. God is not looking for those who want to be entertained. God is not looking for compromisers. In this day and age, God is looking for faithful, courageous, uncompromising men and women. God is looking for those who are sold out to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is looking for fearless people. God is looking for people who hold on to His Word when everybody else is putting it down, when everybody else is undermining it, when everybody else is watering it down. God is looking for men and women, boys and girls, who refuse to be tricked by rattlesnakes. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.